0: Hey, this is Amanda from Urban Grace. This week in worship, we had our congregational meeting, so we didn't have much of a sermon. We did share some really exciting news, though. Urban Grace was recently featured in the 2018 Lilly Annual Report as one of the most exciting projects that the Lilly Endowment funded last year, so we thought we would post a throwback. You are about to hear the kickoff sermon from the 2017 Capital Campaign that tells the amazing story of our city, our church, and what we are building together. Thanks for listening. Would you please pray with me? God of grace, who's present in all things and in all people, We give you thanks for that great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us even today, and pray and ask that your presence will be made known again this morning. Amen. So this is actually a pretty exciting day for me, because we, as I mentioned earlier, we're sort of officially kicking off our capital campaign, and it's been a long time coming. There's been a lot to do to prepare Uh, over and it's really been like a year and a half probably that our leadership has uh, been doing all kinds of stuff like hiring an architect and researchers and an engineer to learn about our building and then sort of like researched and gotten quotes so we understand all the projects and how feasible they are probably more than 20 of these we've worked on and we've written grants to maximize our capacity and organized a team of leaders a team of volunteers from our church who lead us through this process this campaign and so finally two weeks ago we got together for the first time we sort of sat down everybody to divvy up responsibilities and and pick a theme but before we got going we went around this group of about uh 15 to 14 of us that you'll see in a few minutes uh, And we introduced ourselves and we each shared someone who had been a a spiritual influence in our life. And one of our our chairs of that team, George Kovacs, shared about the influence of his grandfather. Now his grandfather was a a professor in a seminary in Budapest, Hungary. And as some of you know, who've met George, know that uh, he and his family had to flee Hungary when he was five because of World War II. And his grandfather stayed in Hungary so so George and his immediate family only saw his grandfather one more time in but in his life yet George was sharing about how he continues to be this um, persistent spiritual influence in George's life and and as he explained this he he said that his grandfather was a part of that cloud of witnesses that walks with him every day and that that term the cloud of witnesses like if you grew up in church that might be familiar to you but maybe not no judgment it's it's only mentioned once in the book of hebrews and and the book of hebrews is a book written to or a letter i should say written to new christians And, and the author wants these new christians to know about all the faithful people who went before them so the writer he or she goes through this list of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Moses' parents, Moses, Rahab, David, Samuel, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jehephthah. And and as the author names all these people, he or she explains how each one of them acted by faith. These, These folks all took risks to follow God when they were uncertain of what the outcome would be. And that's actually how the, the author explains what faith is. He or she is saying that faith is what doing is all about doing what's right and good and pleasing to God, even when it's difficult. But, but this list of folks isn't just a history. Uh, the author doesn't want to just get them familiar with those names and those stories. The author is actually promising that that all these folks continue to walk with us in the life of faith. In in fact, all Christians who have ever lived are are like a cloud, this sort of presence that that we can't quite grasp, but but we can feel, that that surrounds us and continues to support us in our faith today. And and, and that has a, a lot of implications, I think, for our own spirituality, for how we connect for one another how we pray, but it also means that, that we don't walk alone. This, the journey of faith isn't a solo journey, despite our, maybe can I say, our desire uh, to make it? It's a very in American thing to, to believe that we can do it alone, that, that it's all on us. And that, I think, is even reflected probably in the way that we talk about our faith. Uh, we, we talk about, we might say, You know, my personal relationship with Jesus, we might describe my prayer life or what God is doing for me, and just listening to how Christians speak makes it sound like spirituality and faith is something we do for ourselves on our own. It sounds like spirituality is exclusively between God and me, and our faith doesn't need anybody else. But but that's not how it was intended to be. We we need the community of faith that surrounds us, because faith is something that we just can't do on our own. And and so the point of these chapters of Hebrews is to teach this to these new Christians, that that their faith is an experience that they share with a community that's, that's bigger than just their church. Their faith is shared with a cloud of witnesses that surround them. So as we sort of kick off our capital campaign today, I thought it would be cool for us, or for me to share about the cloud of witnesses that walk with us. And uh, because I'll often say that when people ask us, oh, like how, Urban Grace, how old is that? I'll often say that that we are a 134-year-old church and a 12-year-old church because we inherited the spiritual legacy of First Baptist. And when I say that, they look at me funny, because that's a weird thing to say. Uh, and I think it's it's easiest to understand by telling the story, which I'm going to do in just a second. But before I start the story of, of really the, the faith community that has existed in this place, I want to just mention that our history doesn't include the names of a lot of the influential women in our church, um, which does not mean they weren't there. Um, we, so I see lots of references to the different ladies' societies and all the different things that folks were doing. So just as I tell our story, know that the lack of representation of women isn't historical. Uh, Well, it's just patriarchy I think Um, so here's the deal insert lots of awesome women in your mind as I tell this story because you know they were there Um, so feel free to make them up they were as awesome as you imagine them to be so um, yeah, First Baptist it began on March 28, 1883 when Reverend Joseph Beaven founded the First Baptist Church of New Tacoma In the territory, not yet a state, the territory of Washington. And that summer the first building was built on this spot we sit today on 9th and Market and and from there First Baptist really took off. Ten years later they had a members they started with 14 people and in 10 years they had 200 and they knew they needed to build a new building to contain all the folks which was again built right in this spot on 9th and Market. And during this period, the the city of Tacoma was growing rapidly and so did First Baptist Church. By 1920, there were about 800 members and 600 kids enrolled in Sunday school. So the church knew they were going to need to build a new building. So they did what we're doing now and they began a capital campaign raise at that time two hundred and fifty thousand dollars which is about two point seven million and this is actually oh that next picture if you move on is um, oh next one after that there we go that's the first building and then the next one is a picture from actually the capital campaign booklet of how they envisioned the church Um, this The congregation exceeded its goal, and in 1925, they completed a 40,000 square foot Neo-Gothic church with 53 rooms that sat 1,200 people in the sanctuary, and was actually also built to be able to function as a theater, not only a church. And over that next decade, throughout the 1930s, First Baptist became really, I think, the downtown church. the heart of Tacoma growing to 2,400 members which of course doesn't include the kids and 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 actually the Great Depression was pretty rough on the church and in the 1940s and 50s the church went through periods of growth and periods of shrinking until they hit another real time of prosperity in the 1960s where they were around a thousand members and so According to Don Summers, our beloved uh, usher, that was, the growth of the church was due in part to a dominant softball team and an unusually high concentration of eligible bachelors. Um, <laughs> Charlotte didn't confirm that, but you know, I told, I, I told uh, Don this morning, I said, you know, I didn't, this, I didn't see a lot of historic evidence of this softball team. This is the only thing I found was this picture, if, and you can go to the zoomed in, you'll see, Willie and Don and Ray receiving some sort of trophy, and and that's right. Well, well, and and how great is this? So I walk in this morning, because I told that to Don this morning at the breakfast, and these two trophies were sitting on the pulpit. Just a little reminder, you know. So so that may have actually been the case. Uh, But in any case, Yeah, there they are, that's right, We we know that that this was a a period when the church was booming and became home to a lot of folks who we still know today, folks like Ruby Harris, Don and Charlotte Summers, Paul and Doris Krillich, Helen Wiley, the Sutherlands, the Stuarts, and many more familiar folks, And, and this time also found or saw the creation of Harborview Manor, which is a retirement home for the elderly, or a a living home for the elderly that's just up the hill from us that First Baptist built. And, and, And really, from all I hear, this was a wonderful period. But in the coming years, Tacoma would change, and so would First Baptist. And, and to explain this, I want to just do like a, a 90 second sidebar of what was happening in America and in American cities at this time. Uh, because after World War II, there was this huge group of soldiers who were returning from the war who wanted to start families. And, and this group of folks, uh, many of them had some money saved up from the war, and the government made uh, housing incentives to help veterans buy homes. And, and there weren't uh, there wasn 't a lot of extra housing in, in traditional urban cores, places like downtown Tacoma. So developers began to build new houses in the suburbs and, and that there was nothing wrong with that itself, except for two things that were very wrong, I think first, that many, if not most, suburban communities had regulations that prevented people of color from moving there, and, and the government supported discriminatory lending policies. Often you hear about redlining, and that's what we're talking about. That made it extremely difficult for people of color to move to these new communities. And and then secondly, this was also really impacted American cities because these suburbs were like independent tax entities, which meant they no longer paid taxes to the city. So without the tax revenue that they were accustomed to, cities struggled to provide adequate services like police and fire and good schools. And these poor conditions in cities perpetuated the problem. So those who could leave kept leaving, which again, made the problem worse. I mean, these are pictures of downtown Tacoma in the 70s. And, and again, because of the discriminatory policies, people of color were excluded from this trend Of moving to the suburbs and this became known as white flight and that's a part of the history of our city and our churches because as middle-class white folks left our city and left for the suburbs the churches left too and those who stayed usually died even a historic church like First Baptist wasn't immune and by 1978 membership in First Baptist was down to about 425 with about half those folks attending. And and First Baptist had a decision to make. Would they move out to the suburbs where they could again become a booming church or would they stay in a dying downtown? It was was a really serious consideration And, and in 1978 the church actually bought some property in the suburbs. They called it The New Horizons property, and and Ray even mentioned to me that uh, that they actually voted at one point to move out to the suburbs. But uh, actually, you know what? I'll just I'll just go ahead and quote the Tacoma News Tribune here. A great challenge faces the member of Tacoma's historic First Baptist Church, which has decided against following other mainline Protestant churches in the flight to the suburbs. The decision raises questions of whether First Baptist can effectively minister to the inner city. At stake is the church's survival. The article then it goes on to quote the pastor who admitted that churches who go to the suburbs succeed and those who stay downtown usually die but that their ministry was downtown the article then goes on to cite the leadership of the the president the moderator of the congregation our own willie stewart who said that this church was chosen to minister to downtown simply put tacoma needs a downtown church and we are here and and before i tell the rest of the story i want to uh, briefly go back to that cloud of witnesses in the letter to the Hebrews. That, that scripture has a list of fa- folks who acted in faith, some of whom had great success. People like Abraham and David and Moses who got named as a hero of our faith. But, but on that same list of people were a lot of other folks who lived by faith, only to find lives of heartbreak and disappointment. I mean, this list starts with Abel, who was murdered by his brother, and ends with unnamed people who were murdered, tortured, mocked, imprisoned, and thrown out on the street. And it says of those folks, these are our heroes of faith, even though none of them received what was promised. Because faithfulness is not based on outcome of worldly success. Being faithful is not the same thing as getting what we want. The life of faith requires hard choices with unknown consequences. The life of faith means that, that we need to put the needs of others before our own, not knowing how it will turn out. And that's exactly what First Baptists did when they decided to stay downtown. They they chose the hardest path. They chose the faithful path. And they were faithful unto death. Throughout the 80s and 90s, First Baptists struggled along so many in poverty in downtown Tacoma. Many left the church, but many faithful folks stayed with it. Those are some, some wonderful, familiar faces. The church shrank until it was barely able to survive, but just because the congregation was shrinking didn't mean the ministry shrunk. During this period, they created a breakfast program for those in need and developed deep relationships with those living downtown. So when things looked bleak, First Baptist decided not to close. Instead, they envisioned a new congregation that could continue the the ministries that First Baptist began. So, the church under the leadership, of a lot of those folks I showed a minute ago, they uh, gathered together a group of ministers from different denominations and asked, what does Tacoma need in a church? What does downtown Tacoma need in a church? And the model they came up with was an, enema, an <laughs> even I messed it up—an ecumenical church. <laughs> but but a church, and this was early. Actually, they were they took some risks to become a church that would be totally inclusive of everyone, no matter their race, gender, economic status, or sexual orientation. And, and they wanted to be a church that would continue that vital ministry with those downtown and would strengthen relationships with the the burgeoning art community downtown. So in 2005, Urban Grace was created. Some first Baptist folks left because they wanted to be in a Baptist church, but many stuck around. And again, the Tacoma News Tribune reported it, this time quoting our own Doris Krillich, who reflected on that period when so many left for the suburbs and shared her excitement for for both the ecumenical focus and the continued ministry downtown. And and that was 12 years ago. Urban Grace soon called its first installed pastor, Tad Monroe, who helped us become a home to folks from many different walks of life as we grew into a vibrant congregation. And, And Urban Grace has had some ups and downs since, but. After 12 years, we're, we're grateful to be a healthy, growing congregation. I, I think we had like 20 new members last year. That's a big deal for a church our size. And we've increased our role in our community, and our children's ministry has flourished. And meanwhile, our building has really been thriving. We, we welcome something like 1,000 people every week into our doors to use our offices, our sanctuary, Our dance studio all the other spaces including Sunday for church and for the breakfast and and I share this story this morning because today's this a day of excitement where we look to the future and imagine great things but as we look ahead we have to look around and remember that we don't do this alone faith is not an individual pursuit we have a cloud of witnesses that surround us this morning. And, and I think that, that our cloud of witnesses, they, they look pretty similar to that, that list in the book of Hebrews. Because some who passed through this place stepped out in faith and saw their action lead to great success. I mean, they, they built this massive building and were this huge, flourishing church. And then others saw the promise from afar never getting to to realize the fruit of their labor. I think to some it looked like their church had died. Yet here we are today, investing in another generation of ministry, in this place and in this city. Here we are today, walking with a cloud of witnesses, some who sit next to us on Sunday, some who came many years before, and others who have yet to arrive and together we enter this season where we are be asked to live by faith we'll be asked to to reap a harvest sown by others we'll be asked to sow seeds again trusting that those seeds will be gathered by those yet to come and this this process this next few months won't be led by me or by the consultant who we've hired to help us, we will be led by members of our community who are giving their gifts of time and energy to sow seeds of hope for our future. And this morning, we're going to commission that group. And commission just is a, is a fancy word for praying over, sometimes sending. It usually has to do with a particular task. So we're going to pray over the sacred work of leading us to ask ourselves what this church means to us, how we can invest here, building together for ministry. So we're going to do that right now. So the Capital Campaign team, come on up.